0: spine how books are made i'm your host holly dunn we're taking a break from our usual design discussion to bring you this bonus episode earlier this year when we were developing the podcast we took a look at several different formats for the show one of the thoughts we had was to discuss with authors the process of bringing one of their books to life which led us to record an interesting conversation with author erica swyler Erica's first novel was the book of Speculation. She has a fascinating story to tell as to how she became involved with the pitching process for that book. We also talked to her about writing and a bit about her current project. We are still considering author interviews and we'd like your thoughts about it. You can contact us through our website at spinemagazine.co Spine contributor Susanna Baird interviewed Erica for this episode. I'm an NYU graduate,
1: but uh, I didn't start out thinking I was going to be a writer, so my degree is in something um, kind of ridiculous. I have a BFA in Experimental Theater and English Literature, <laughs> um, which basically means that I can ask you if you'd like fries with that using interpretive dance. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's pretty much the most useless degree ever, except that it meant that I got to spend a lot of time um, with words. And, um Whereas I I started out thinking that I was going to be an actor, I wound up leaving my education thinking, oh, well, I'm a playwright now. And um, then it sort of spread into short stories and eventually a novel. And um, yeah, so it was sort of an interesting um, roundabout way of figuring out that I really liked to write above all other things. So that's um, sort of how I got to become a writer. and where, what else about me? Let's see, I'm from uh, Long Island, New York, and that influences my writing a lot. I'd say um, water is always a huge factor in, in what I'm writing just because I can't really imagine not living near it. And um, I think that um, place has a really strong influence in what I do, and so I think it's important to know that I'm, that I'm from Long
2: Island. And, yeah, I think that's about the most um, detailed thing about me that makes sense you talked about place set us up for your place when you are writing on Long Island are you always sitting in the same place do you find yourself taking breaks for example I know you are writing a lot about water are there certain places in your community that you find yourself either wandering as you're thinking through a story or do you tend to hunker down throughout that Uh, process
1: yeah I would say it I move around a lot I tend to move from room to room as I write. Um, I will sometimes go out to coffee shops, libraries. I very rarely write outside or on the beach simply because I find it too distracting. Like there's, frankly, the world outside is much more beautiful than the world on any page that you're writing. So I find that um, distracting for me and not so helpful for my process. Um, I write a lot in a studio that I have in my house, that's in my basement. and. Um, At the moment, I'm working a lot on a treadmill desk, which is um, a unique experience. You get to kind of pace as you're writing and as you're working, and I find that really helpful in a way that I hadn't anticipated, but it's also kind of funny because I hate working out, and I hate the work of writing in a lot of ways, so I'm combining two things that I dislike an (laughs) awful lot. It really indulges my massacres. Absolutely. It indulges my masoch- my masochistic tendencies a lot. But um then when I'm done writing for the day, I sort of feel like I've really accomplished something because I <laughs> you don't have to myself. work out. Right, right. That's what it is. You're done. So um yeah, I, I guess I, I make words at one mile an hour. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> very slow, But at the same time it seems to be it seems to be helpful and it keeps me from uh, messing around too much on the internet, which is the great time sink for all of us, I think but um yeah i try and i try and work for about um four hours a day i tend to do it in two hour sections and um there it's not all productive time i think um the great mistake a lot of people make is thinking that um when you sit down to write you will be writing for all of those minutes and that's just not true i mean like writing in the sense that you'll just be typing or or you know in your notebook and that's I think not how it works for most people um it's always surprising to me how much of writing is not writing <laughs> yes
2: very much rabbit yeah. holes and
1: yeah it's rabbit holes and sometimes just sitting and staring and thinking and you know sometimes I can sit down for one of these two-hour blocks and make about five words But I've still done a lot of work because I've been moving pieces around in my head and just devoting the time towards thinking about the work. So that's it's frustrating sometimes because in those in those chunks, I really want to be making a lot of pages. But, um, you know, just having the time to set aside to actually focus on the work is ultimately more important. So that's kind of how my day is structured. Two hours and then two hours, however, I can get to it. So and, you don't um, have try a
2: specific time that you have to be, you don't no, have to no, be sitting there from eight to 10.
1: No, I, I wish I did. I, I like the idea of having a really structured day, but that doesn't work for me. I know there are a lot of people who insist on morning hours. I am not functional <laughs> at like seven in the morning. It's just not happening. Coffee, coffee, I, I don't coffee. think I'm, oh gosh, yeah, I don't, I can't write without at least two cups of coffee in me and a third waiting to be consumed, you know? <laughs> So that's that's about it. Yeah, I guess most of my writing is, in fact, really fueled by by coffee in one way or another, and caffeine not tea. And the I treadmill. Tried. Yeah, caffeine and the treadmill. So I I am I'm a little hamster, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I guess um, yeah, it seems to it seems to. Uh, so yeah, a lot of coffee and sometimes gum. <laughs> I have to be doing something.
2: Yes, I am gum or crunchy crunchy items. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, if I do crunchy, I will sit there and I will eat an entire bag of nachos by myself right. and then be horrified.
2: So, <laughs> and get back on the treadmill.
1: Right. It sort of defeats the purpose when <laughs> you're sitting there walking and putting chips in your mouth at the same time and telling yourself that you're writing.
2: So I think probably the book that the writing of yours that most readers will be familiar with is the Book of Speculation, your first novel and you talk about in the introduction which is a very lovely introduction and I encourage everybody to read it. It really puts you in a certain frame of mind before diving into the book. You say it began as so many other books do with worry and fear. Could you talk a little bit about that fear and worry and sure. where those overtook you in the course of writing the book and how they propelled you or if not how you buried them in order to get to the end?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think there is no writing a novel without a certain degree of fear, and that is the fact that you're tackling such a big project. Um, I had started this book not knowing at first that it was a book. I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm writing a play, and then I realized, no, it, it's bigger than that, and I don't think it would fit on the stage, so what am I writing? Okay, maybe I'm writing a short story. No, it's bigger than that, and it started, the more I looked at the idea, the, the bigger it was, and that became very intimidating because I didn't know how I could possibly get to the end of a long project that would take a number of years <laughs> of my life since I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and do it justice, because I think the idea the first time it popped in my head was very new and shiny, and it felt really, really rich. And I didn't know if I would be an able storyteller for it. And, you know, it's so disappointing when you come across something um, that is a really great idea that's just poorly told. Right. And I didn't want to do that for myself. And I, I thought it would be I didn't know if I could finish something um, and I didn't know if I was capable of devoting that much of my life to really um, having, having a project that might never see the light of day. So it was a whole lot of worry and then um, also a fear of judgment in some ways because when you're an unpublished writer and you're devoting many, many hours to a project yeah. and you're away from your friends, you sort of look like this you you look like a mad person, right? And you sort of become you become in some ways a joke amongst everybody. Oh, that book! haha, uh, How's the book going? Whatever is is it ever going to be published? When am I ever going to read it? And you don't know these things, so there is this fear of judgment. So you have fear of judgment from the outside. I had I was judging myself, and just the worry that I wouldn't do it well. So that's how it started. Um, But at the same time, that's all faced against, you know, the love of this idea that you have and a certain curiosity because I didn't know how things ended and I didn't know how it was all going to weave together. And that little itch to figure out how this would work started out really small, but it grew and it grew and it grew until at a certain point I was too far along to stop. I had devoted too much time to just let it go. And it became sort of um, a passion to see if I could finish something.
2: And do you do you also feel, I feel sometimes an obligation to a character that I've grown involved with, and I feel I can't finish something until the end because I owe it to that character then, which makes <laughs> no sense as this character only exists in my mind and on my laptop, but do you have any any attachment to characters that makes you want to see where they're going or how you'll how you'll finish them up at the end of the story?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you spend so much time with them that even though they're, you know, not real people, they're very real to you. And, you know, and they're, in my case, they're my friends in a lot of ways. And I feel quite tenderly for them, even though in some cases I've done horrible things to them. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah I, I feel really tenderly towards them i wouldn't i think a lot of people say that their books are their children, and I wouldn't go so far as that that's a different kind of relationship, but it is this sort of there is a familial bond to them in, in some way just because you have made them and you' you've thought about them so much and um yeah you want to do you want to do them justice and in some ways, I think that's the only way we can really truly praise our own ideas by, oh yes, I, I did this character justice. <laughs> and that's
2: sort of like, yes, my thought was really good. And I put a lot into it, but it sounds a little bit less vain to say it that way. Um, you mention again, I'm going back to the beginning of your book because it is where we find nice little tidbits before we dive in. You talk about your agent, Michelle Brower, and you say that she mm-hmm. fixed a mess. Tell me yes. where, tell me where she came into the process and what role she had in fixing.
1: Sure, Um, so when Michelle found me, and I do say I was found, um, because she'd um, come across a short story of mine and um, contacted me after reading it and asked if I'd had a novel. I said, yeah, I have a novel. And coincidentally, the short story you read is part of a scrapped chapter from it. And um, so I sent what I had along, which at that time I thought, well, I'd, I'd reached a point with it where I realized I was done, meaning that I couldn't work on it anymore without some outside outside input that would imply that um, we were going to try to sell it or I might eventually get paid. I couldn't do it myself without um, making it worse, <laughs> <It's>, I guess, <laughs> the best way to, th- to think of it. And so I sent it to her and she said, this is great, um, but we're gonna, you're gonna need a lot of work and we're gonna need to work hard. And I said, that's no problem. Um, if there's one thing I'm always up for, it's actually work, like a lot of work. So um, we talked a lot about um, structure. So, and i she had me read a whole bunch of books that had wildly different structures just so I could think about things differently. Um, one that comes to mind was Cloud Atlas. Um, and so I think she really helped me wrangle the scope of the book as far as how to deal with a time span of 250 years in a way that doesn't um, give a reader whiplash or bore them to sleep, and in a way that makes the plot elements kind of touch back to each other. So after, um, after I hooked up with Michelle, we um, kind of went back and forth for about a year uh, with drafts and figuring out how to how to find people who would really connect with the book and and what its real touchstones were as far as, as far as readership, which is something I certainly wouldn't have been able to do myself at all because I think when you're when you're deep in or, or when I'm deep in the novel writing process, I think that no one is gonna read this book and no one's gonna love it but me and that's okay. <laughs>
2: which you know isn't necessarily great maybe not something the marketers (laughs) want to hear yeah
1: you can't really say that to marketers but um yeah she really helped me hone in on um how the mechanics of the book were going to work and um really what what the heart of it was as far as what was gonna what was gonna um connect with readers so yeah
2: and that was about a year process year long that was about a year
1: yeah and um I think in part uh, it's because I'm a slow writer. I'm a, I, I'm a thinker, I guess, as as far as that would go, and um, and I really obsess a lot over over language. So um, where I, it, it just takes me a long time to really get the words I want on the page in the way that I think makes sense.
2: Well, your writing is lovely. Anybody that's listening that hasn't read it, you can tell that you take that attention because it's not only an excellent narrative, and I think you did a great job with structure. It's very interesting to hear you say that because one of the things I noticed right away was the structure and how successful Mm -hmm. it was. So it's interesting to hear that you worked so hard on it before you settled on, on the final I had been through about, I
1: want to say, four different structures of it on my own. I had it divided into four books at one point in time. And like it was just trying to figure out how to wrangle um, so many characters and the scope was really difficult. And um, because I had a feeling that I was grasping um, not just an entire family, but an entire town in in one sort of moment. And to try and get that in a way that makes sense to a reader is, it takes a little bit of effort.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, it, it was beautifully done. Um, so after you worked with Michelle, you went ahead and pitched the book around. And I, one thing I love about this next thing that we're going to talk about is throughout the book of speculation, books have such a presence, not only as a collection of concepts, or ideas or narratives, but also as physical objects. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's so lovely that you managed to figure out a way to express that when you sent out the manuscript. Could you tell us a little bit about what you did? Sure, and this is absolutely bonkers. (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily
1: recommend it for other people, but um, it, it worked for me and it made sense for this particular project. So um, when my agent, um, Michelle, and I were going back and forth about, oh, how are we going to present this to people? She said, oh, and I, I think she just meant it as sort of like, um, you know, an off-the-cuff remark. Wouldn't it be cool if we could just send a book, uh, you know, like an actual finished book? Oh, it would be so cool. And um, because books are such, you know, a central point in in this novel. And I guess when you say stuff like that to me, I get a little um, – Overly focused, we'll say, not necessarily (laughs) obsessed. But uh, so I hung up from the call and I thought, yeah, well, why can't I send this book that's such a plot element? Um, It's this very old leather bound um, journal that's all sketched in by uh, one of the characters, um, Hermelius Peabody, who was a circus master in the 1790s. And so I looked up Bookbinding. And well first I looked at book bookbinders and tried to figure out how much it would cost to like get sixteen copies bound in leather and could I abuse them and make them look old and I realized it would be something like a ten thousand dollar investment, which was <laughs> obviously not in the writer's not, budget. Not, not in the cards. So um being the cheap and resourceful person that I am. I took to the internet and tried to figure out um, how I could do it myself, um, fast and on the cheap. And so I came across this uh, method of hand finding books that's called, uh, it's Japanese stab-stitching or stab-binding, and um, it's been in use for you know hundreds if not thousands of years, and it's this wonderful method of really quickly and easily hand-sewing books. And so I thought, oh, I can teach myself how to do this. So I made some prototypes, and it turned out to be pretty easy as far as just, you know, binding a lot of pages. So um, then I found some paper that looked a lot like um, very old leather. Uh, It was called, let's see, Handmade Indian Leatherite Crinkle. (laughs) (laughs) Impressive. Yeah, and it was um, at New York Paper Supply, and it was um, just really amazing. I think it was, no, New York art supply company. Sorry. Their paper department is unreal. And, um, so I bought a lot from them and, um, started to make these leather looking paper covers, uh, that were hand stitched. And I left the binding on the outside so that it looked, um, quite old and that it was clearly hand done. And then I started, um, aging the pages, uh, with tea and a foot rasp to try and, you know, really put wear on them. And, um, then I, I had also found a, a font to print the book in. it's, um, 1789 GLC fournier, <laughs> <laughs> which was period accurate for something that would be printed in the late 1700s. It's got like huge commas and everything. It looks really cool. So yeah, I typeset the book myself. Um, aged the pages, bound them in um, this leather-looking stuff. And then I decided it would be really cool if people could open the book and elements of the story would just pop out at them. So my character Peabody sketches an awful lot. So I started to do um, some of his sketches from the book, and I put them on tea-stained pages and aged the edges and and tucked them inside the pages And also a major plot element was um, a deck of tarot cards, which may or, you know, it it, it travels through a family for a long time and um, those needed to be aged. So I tea stained a bunch of tarot cards and also filed them down with a rasp, which is it was kind of a weird process because at a certain point in time, it meant I was like, you know, very much abusing the devil. (laughs) <laughs> which I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily a superstitious person, but if there was something... But if you were, were going to do, flip your luck. Right. <laughs> right. So um, each of the copies had some of these, it had illustrations tucked in the pages, and they had um, a few of tarot cards that were tucked in also, so as people opened these books, this art would just kind of fall out at them, which I thought um, really just would be an interesting experience and when we and would be very much like what my main librarian character Simon has happened to him he has this book appear on his doorstep and it just kind of grabs him and I thought to myself well um you know if if all else fails and people get this object and they think what the heck is this and they just throw it in the trash can at least I know I'll have tried everything I will have put all of myself into this and at least I will have made this art object that I will have for myself as proof that I finished this thing. So, um, it became something that I valued no matter, no matter what would happen as far as the end game of the book. And it took about, I want to say three months. I took the better part of a summer to, um, make 16 of these little art pieces (laughs) and, um, this was all across my dining room table and there was like paper dust everywhere and tea everywhere and I looked like an absolute troll. <laughs> I was covered in
2: like brown stained of, like, fingers.
1: Stained fingers, just like ink, everything, just uh ink tea, coffee and paper all over the place. And it's a wonder that I'm not divorced. My husband is clearly a very patient man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like I said, about, you know, um, when friends think that you've gone insane. That was it. That was the peak. That was the, <laughs> that was the moment when they just stopped coming
2: over completely.
1: Right. When they said, are you sure? Like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, but I, I have to do this. And yes, I know this is completely crazy. and um, but I just need to see this through to its end. And, um, so I didn't, I had all these copies and, um, my agent at that point in time was so, so creative. I, I love this um, because everybody else is so keyed into digital as well. Um, the digital copies of the book went out on little hard drives that were in um, glass bottles, like a message in a bottle. Oh, wonderful. And the title of the book was written on onion skin and it was just in- inside the bottle. And it was just like the absolute nicest touch. Um, so these packages went out to editors and um, I think it's, it, I, I, my understanding is that it's unusual to get a um, hard, <laughs> to get an actual physical copy of a book these days, let alone one that's hard, that's um, bound. So um, it was this unusual thing. And um, I guess about four days after this all went out, um, I sold the book.
2: That's Wonderful. And you could tell yeah. all your friends, <laughs> That's right. I am not no. crazy. I'm not crazy. This actually, it, it worked. But or I, think, I am
1: crazy, but it worked. But it worked. But I think what wound up working about it was that it keyed into this thing that if you are in the book industry, you're in it because you love books. Of course. It's yeah, it's too difficult, and it's too you know there's there are too many hoops to jump through to not to be in the industry and be an editor if you don't absolutely have a passion for books from the time you're small. So I think having this object and and speaking so much to the magic of of what a book really is connected. And
2: absolutely, so how could it not? And then when you open up the, I mean, I would love to hear how they approached it once they got it because just to be holding this beautiful thing and then to find the theme of book is object woven throughout the book Mm -hmm. I can just imagine they were overjoyed
1: well it was interesting I think it wound up with me having a lot um a lot more creative input than I think authors well debut authors in particular typically get which I was very aware of going along that it was it, it felt like a real privilege to be to have so much communication as far as you know the interior design and 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 what was you know fonts that were being chosen and um you know colors for end papers and it it was and colors for the illustrations inside I got to see all you know Pantone choices for things and there was two color printing and I think that stems back to the fact that I sent this very creative package that you know I would be invested. I did have an opinion and, you know, and
2: it might be valuable, which was, I I think is pretty rare. And And I very much so, I think, especially the first time. Yeah. Were those were the illustrations that ended up in the book illustrations from your original pitching process or were they created?
1: Um, Some were, Uh, some were definitely from the original pitching process, like the horse. um, Let's see, I think it's, yeah, there, there's a very small horse in there. It's finest Rosie, I believe. And, um, that went out with the initial pitch, but then, um, they were all reworked later to be, um, because things that to be more pen and ink friendly, um, in my initial, cause I tend to sketch in, um, charcoal and graphite. So, which was not what my character sketched in. So my style <laughs> didn't match my characters. So I had to, I had to redo things later, but, um, Let's see one of the paintings Rizkova's father uh horseshoe crab and um let's see, and the horse were all from the initial pitch and um everything else i think i uh, most other things i think i I wound up reworking during um during the editing process and and illustrating new. I was very surprised that they had bought the illustrations um I guess when the announcement went out that they had bought an illustrated novel, I thought, oh, cool. I wonder who I'm going to be working with. And then I realized, oh my gosh,
2: it's me. (laughs) I'm the illustrator. I'm
1: the illustrator. That's weird. (laughs) So... (laughs) But it wound, up being, it wound up being really good because I think a lot of times when um, other authors are sitting there sweating about their
2: edits and hearing back, um, I was busy sketching like crazy trying to make an art deadline. You had something to do, right? Yeah. And they really, they add so much to the book, I think. Um, now this, there is no lovely segue to this one. So I'll just read, this is a sentence that I found in your acknowledgements that I was interested in hearing a little more about. Sure. Ste- Stephanie Friedberg. Friedberg yeah, Stephanie Friedberg called in the middle of the night to yell a chapter number at me, letting me know I was on to something. So can you tell me what that, sure. what actually happened?
1: So, uh, yeah, Steph, Stephanie Friedberg is, um, my, my roommate from college and one of my dearest, dearest friends and, um, probably I think the reader I aim for, uh, just cause she's incredibly smart and, and just a really discerning reader and, I think she's kind of a reader everybody would want. So um, she'd seen um, what I considered to be like my most finished draft. And um, I was out wandering the city with uh, my husband and some friends. And we were on our way back from a restaurant, fairly tipsy. And my phone goes off and it's like midnight. And I see that it's it's Stephanie. And I think, oh, my God, something's wrong. And I pick up the phone and she screams, oh, my God, chapter 19. <laughs> And so I, I was really excited that I knew she was reading, but then that she would have to immediately call me when she read this chapter. I said, oh, well, that's good, especially because um, that's a big plot hinging chapter. <laughs> and she was so excited so,
2: she couldn't wait.
1: Right. And so I knew at that point I was like, oh, yes, OK, this reveal works because somebody had to call <laughs> me right away. <laughs> So I think, and that's the first time I'd really had like a visceral reaction, just someone express a visceral reaction who was outside of my family. <laughs> so oh, that's so exciting. I felt like, oh, good, yes. And if she's that into it and has to call me now, this this must mean something good for for a smart reader. So that was really satisfying for me.
2: Big affirmation. Yeah. And to end up, I know you cannot talk a lot about the draft. Um, but right. <laughs> from my understanding, you sent it off and it's being reviewed. Yeah,
1: yeah. so my agent has it right now. Um, but that's always sort of a who knows? I, it, it could be like, yes, we're ready to go with this. Or you really took a,
2: a wrong turn and we should maybe talk some more. <laughs> before you have three more cool. years of revisions. Now, right. are you allowed to tell us anything?
1: Um, yeah, I can tell you some things about it. Um, so I'm working in 1986, Florida, and my protagonist is an 11 year old girl who's very interested in science, um, and space in particular. And a lot of the book hinges on her relationship with her father. And, um, and I'm working a lot with the concept of different experiences of time. So time is something I like to look at a lot and play with a lot because, um, we all assume that everyone experiences time the way that we do, um, and I don't necessarily think that's true or that we have any evidence that that's, you know, the case. So, um, yeah, I wanted to spend a lot of time um, looking at that and examining relationships, so that's sort of um, where the next book is going. And it's been it's been fun because I've got to dive back into a lot of things that um, – I'm really interested in and have been really interested in such as space and science. And I got to go around and um, tour Kennedy uh, space center and go look oh, at a lot fun. of NASA things. Yeah. And spend a lot of time down on down in the space coast of Florida. And it's been interesting stuff. Just seeing um, high science culture colliding with um, sort of old world Florida culture in a way that people don't normally think, you know, mix up. So that's been it's been interesting research it's been a lot of fun and i've gotten to talk to some 11 year olds which is really cool and uh the best thing is that i think the kids are so much um they're so much smarter than most people think and um i find that i've had a lot of problems lately thinking uh reading overly precocious child protagonists that seem a lot like they're just um the author talking yes (laughs) And um I think it was really important to me to find smart kids being smart, but also being kids and figuring out how to write that. So that's sort of what I'm working with now.
2: And I think eleven, I have an eleven year old and that age in particular is really straddling that adult yes. child divide. I mean, I they're sort of looking backwards and forwards at the same time. And so that is yeah a, that is a great age, I think, yeah, for a I character. Was... I
1: was, um, when I was visiting a school the other day, I heard two girls, you know, talking as they're going down the hallway and they're about, you know, 10 or 11. They're saying, ah, this week, it just went by so fast. I don't even know. It went by so fast, but it felt like it took forever too. And I was like. That's it. That's the adult moment (laughs) coming right out of a child. So it's interesting because I think people sometimes write children as much younger than they are and also much older than they are. So trying to find that right balance is is really difficult, but also highly enjoyable because um, you get to be be really enthusiastic about a lot of things that I think... um, you know uh more jaded adult narrators don't always get to so
2: no that age can still really be enthusiastic especially if they're engaged so yes i'm looking forward to meeting this
1: character yeah
2: she's she's pretty great
1: her name is netta and i'm i'm massively enthusiastic about her
2: and i guess um yeah she's at this point in time my favorite thing (laughs) yay oh that's so good to feel like that about a character too it makes the writing in the treadmill and the caffeine all yeah. All worth it makes it. it a little less, you know, <laughs> of a workout. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, well, Erica, thank you so much. Um, I know that I, for one, am really, really excited to read the next one. I love the first one, and oh, thank um, you.
0: we will talk to you again soon. Spine is a production of Spine Magazine. For show notes, articles, audio and video about the enormous talent that goes into creating books, visit spinemagazine.co.